0: This morning we're going to take a break in our travels through the gospel of John. We're at a kind of a good stopping point in John as it is. And the reason that we're going to be in Acts chapter 5 this morning uh, really has a lot to do with our previous series through the book of Acts. This was a few years back, uh, the church was just starting, and the Lord led us to kind of the blueprint for the church. And so as we were going through the book of Acts, the book of Acts was definitely going through us and was addressing things and helping us establish things. And we wanted and still want to emulate uh, this blueprint that God establishes first church. In our elders meetings, with so many new people coming in to the church, uh, we feel like it's important periodically when the time is appropriate, to go back to some of the important truths, some of the important lessons that God kind of illuminated from His Word, things that are important to our church family, that have been influential in crafting our vision, mission, direction. And this is definitely one of those passages uh, that the Lord has used. Let's just dive into the text, Acts chapter 5. Beginning with verse 1, we read that a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. The author of Acts, who is historically known as Dr. Luke, begins this important story, introducing us to a couple. Ananias, this this Hebrew word means God is gracious, and his beautiful wife, Sapphira. We know she was beautiful because Sapphira is the Aramaic term. For beauty. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they were quite a match, a coupling of grace and beauty. Luke tells us, after introducing us to them, that they sold a possession. We'll actually come to find that this possession was a parcel of land. In context, it would seem that this land was sold with the intent of giving the full, quote, proceeds to the church. This word proceeds we have used by Luke, it literally means. The full sell price. That's what the word implies. And keep in mind, in the text, no one asked them to do this. And I think that's important. No one asked Ananias and Sapphira to sell this parcel of land to give the whole proceeds to the church. This was not mandated. It was not instructed. As a matter of fact, in the flow of the book of Acts, this seems kind of to be a reaction to Barnabas, the son of encouragement and a wonderful gift that he gave in the previous chapter seeing Barnabas' gift, Ananias and Sapphira, they make this determination. We're going to sell this possession, this parcel of land. We're going to give the entire proceeds to the church. Now, this would appear to be the first of two serious missteps. The word kept back. So they sold the parcel of land, but they kept back. This word kept back, it means to misappropriate. Or literally, it can be translated to embezzle. Another time that we find this Greek word in use is in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, which the translators uh, recorded as pilfering. So they kept back, they pilfered, they embezzled. Now the picture that Luke is painting for us is one where Ananias and Sapphira had given a possession to God before they sold it. This wasn't their land, this was God's land, and they had determined that whatever it sold for. They were going to give the entirety of the proceeds, the sale price, to the church. Not asked to, an act of giving. However, once this possession probably sold for maybe more than they thought, there was an uptick in the market, the implications that Luke is establishing is that they decided to kind of renege on the promise and keep back for themselves some of what they had allocated to God. Now, though the text doesn't specifically tell us this, it's implied from the context, that, uh, the context of the remainder of the story that Ananias, under likely the directive of Sapphira, so they were in co- cohorts, they brought a certain part of the proceeds, they gave it to the apostles, but they did so, and this is the other misstep, under a false pretense. The false pretense was that they were actually giving the whole when they weren't. Well, verse 3, But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Don't, Don't forget the apostles hadn't asked for this land. Peter continues, While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it still not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The transition here, it's significant. But Peter. There's a parallel. You have the act of Ananias here, but Peter. Clearly, we see but Peter as kind of another instance of a unique manifestation of a gift of the Holy Spirit in the life of, of Peter himself. Understand there's no way for Peter to have known what Ananias had done. It's not like he had the land audited or had gone to the tax records to pull, to pull the, uh, uh, the deed, Peter had no way of knowing that a scheme had been hatched between Ananias and Sapphira, a, a, a scheme hatched in secret. We have to conclude that in the moment, but Peter, in this specific instance, had what we would call, and what the Bible describes, as a gift of knowledge, a word of knowledge. In the moment, the Holy Spirit gave Peter a unique supernatural insight, intuition, into this situation? Well, there is no question. Sins committed in private demand a private rebuke. Since this was a sin committed in public, it became necessary for Peter to issue a public rebuke here of Ananias. The scene is that this is happening in front of the whole church. Peter begins, look at it again. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Peter is crystal clear, isn't he? That the offense was not that Ananias kept back part of the land. Understand that. The offense was that Ananias had presented his gift under the false pretense that he was giving all. The severity of the crime becomes evident in the reality that Peter actually accuses Ananias in front of everyone of doing something you don't want to ever be accused of, lying to the Holy Spirit. In the original language, this indicates that Ananias was presenting not just a falsehood, but a deliberate falsehood through his actions. In essence, you would say that Ananias' crime was that of hypocrisy. His actions revealed that he was masquerading as someone he wasn't. Ananias was pretending, faking, engaged, and a deliberate deception. And what's worse is this hypocritical deed had been done. Why? Because Ananias had allowed Satan <laughs> to fill his heart. Again, not another accusation you'd want levied at you. The passion behind Ananias' act of generosity clearly wasn't Christ, and that's what Peter's saying. The heart, your heart's been filled with something devious. It's not that you're giving this because you care for the church, or you're wanting to meet needs. And Ananias' desire in giving was to bring attention and glory to himself. Peter continues, look at it. After it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Though Satan had been the motivation behind Ananias' actions, notice Peter is not letting him off the hook. It's as though Peter's like, bro, this was all in your control. No one asked you to do this, no one was forcing you to do this. This was something that you conceived and you did deliberately for the wrong motives. It is true that hypocrisy in the life of an individual might be a sin witnessed by men. But this passage makes it evident that at its core, hypocrisy is actually a greater offense to God. Well, verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, which implies that there are other people present. And the young men, the ushers, arose, wrapped him up. It's like a mob hit. And carried him out and buried him. (laughs) Upon hearing these words, Luke tells us that Ananias fell down and breathed his last. This Greek word, fell down. It means to descend from an erect to prostate position. It was a term used in Greek language of someone falling dead suddenly to keel over. And to be clear, Ananias is indeed dead. And telling us that he breathed his last. Luke, who's a doctor by trade, is making it clear that the breath of life had departed from the body. It wasn't those that he just fainted and they overreacted and buried him anyway. Now, they checked the pulse. They made sure the old, the old man was dead before they put him in the ground. Now, contrary to common, the common popular understanding of this passage, please note what, doesn't, what didn't happen. In no way can you make the argument that Peter pronounced a death sentence on Ananias. Do you see that in the text at all? All Peter does is he confronts Ananias on his sin. That's all Peter's, Peter's role has been. As a matter of fact, I'm actually pretty certain, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, that Peter was just as surprised as everyone else when Ananias ended up falling down dead. That Peter was a bit shocked. Well, verse 7, now it happened about three hours later when Ananias' wife came in, not knowing what had happened, that Peter answered her and said, "Tell Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Then immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her with her husband. It's a killer church service. Now, we already know, we already know that Sapphira has been in cahoots with her husband. I'm also at this point fairly certain that Peter is aware of this dynamic as well. And yet, notice something that I find to be very gracious. Do you see that, that when Sapphira comes in, that Peter graciously gives her an opportunity to come clean? Like, he asks her a few questions right off the bat. And I think for Peter, like, there was a deep longing. Come on, girl. Just be honest. Just, just, just come clean. Just lay it out there. And yet, sadly, Sapphira not only maintains the same lie she had concocted with Ananias, but just like her counterpart, she brazenly denies any any improprieties and she dies. Now, because of her role in the scheme, Sapphira would experience the same judgment as Ananias. Peter says, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out. She fell down and breathed her last. And for me, and I don't know if, if, if you can relate to this, as a lifelong church member looking at this particular church service, this is where this all gets complicated for me. Like if, if left just to the description of Ananias' death, there might be some wiggle room, Right? For you to conclude that Ananias had died of natural causes, that he was so shocked that Peter had this word of knowledge, that he had a heart attack, and he fell over and he died, that the rebuke got him. The problem is that you can't make that case with Sapphira. The death of Sapphira, there is no question, presents for us a picture of divine judgment. This is not natural causes. She was struck down. If Peter had been surprised by the death of Ananias, Peter is so certain of Sapphira's impending death that he predicts it's about to happen before it does. Did you see that? As such, the reality that God judged Ananias and Sapphira by literally striking them both dead at church when they were giving... (laughs) is unavoidable, and that's a problem. I hope you're squirming a little where you're sitting. You know, the majority of Bible teachers, those that you'll listen to through this passage, they will present this story as a stark warning against hypocritical behavior in the church. This warning against hypocrisy. I've even listened to commentators who will point out that this 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 story is actually just a perfect illustration for the way that God deals with people within the church, much differently than the way He does with those outside the church. Kind of the with revelation comes greater responsibility theory. I've also heard Bible teachers explain the extreme way in which God deals with Ananias and Sapphira occurred because it's kind of consistent with a larger a, a larger idea that. That when God begins a new work, and the church is a new work, that God always goes to extremes to establish clear precedents. These expositors will point to a story in the Old Testament. The children of Israel enter the land of promise, right? They experience their first conquest there at Jericho, but God was clear. Don't take any of the spoils. They then go to a lesser town, Ai, and they get routed. Joshua's upset, he goes to God, and he's like, there's sin in the camp. They find out it's Achan. What do they do? They kill him, his wife, his kids, and everything, make a big mound out of it. Why? A precedent. God's serious. That's how this story is often presented, kind of like the sin of Achan. And while I have the utmost respect for those that espouse all of these explanations, I'm friends with them, in light of the assumed belief that Ananias and Sapphira are Christians. I must be honest with you that neither of these conclusions as to why God would judge believers in such a harsh way makes any sense to me at all. As a matter of fact, I'm quite offended by it. I agree. Hypocrisy within the church can't be tolerated. And why? It has a destructive effect on the individual, but also the church at large. And I also agree that God views the issues of obedience and purity among His people with extreme seriousness. But the notion that God would kill two believers who had been bought by the blood of Christ simply to establish a precedent for a new work doesn't sit well with the rest of the New Testament. If Ananias and Sapphira were believers, as many suppose, let me ask, weren't they under grace and not law? And if that's the case, hadn't their past sins, present sins and future sins, already experienced the divine judgment of God when his wrath was poured out on Jesus at Calvary? Like, don't get me wrong. I do believe that even the sins of believers bring with them very natural consequences. But this wasn't natural consequences. This was the direct intervention and judgment of God. If they were believers, Ananias and Sapphira made a tragic mistake. But I should ask, was the crime really worth the punishment? Don't you think this is a little extreme? I do. And if it was extreme, then why don't we see hypocrisy in the church experience the same type of judgment today? There wouldn't be any of us here, but you understand my point. You see, I'm of the opinion that this passage becomes unnecessarily complicated because of an assumption. We assume that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. I mean, why else would they be going to church? But if you look back at the text, you will notice that never once does the passage indicate that was the case. Never once. As a matter of fact, in diagnosing the core problem, Peter observes the total contrary. Like what Peter says could never be said of one filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You can't say that of a believer. What relationship does light have with darkness? Christ with Belial. Like understand, Satan's initial strategy, when you look at the book of Acts, when it came to opposing the work that God was doing through the church, the first line of attack was intimidation. In order to squelch the incredible work God was doing, in the first part of Acts 4, the religious establishment that had killed Jesus severely threatens. They arrest Peter and John and they severely threaten them to no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And yet, not only do do Peter and John refuse to cave to their demands, but in response to a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we're told that these men do the opposite. We're not gonna be intimidated. And we're told that they go out and they speak the word of God with more boldness. Like it was clear that the first attack trying to silence the church of intimidation didn't work. Which is why then as you get to chapter 5, Luke presents the story of Ananias and Sapphira to illustrate a satanic shift in strategy. Instead of intimidation, what we find here is that Satan's trying to stop the work of Jesus through the church through infiltration. To me... Ananias and Sapphira not being believers provides a much better explanation as to why God dealt so swiftly, deliberately, and publicly with Ananias and Sapphira. Like, think about it. God intervened in such a dramatic way. Why? To preserve the integrity of his work from the corrosive infiltration of the enemy. You see, as demonstrated by their own actions, it was clear that Ananias and Sapphira were not interested in giving as a response to God's grace. It wasn't as though they were giving to care for the greater needs of the church. They wanted to give so they could receive a greater place of influence. It was all about them. I believe that this was not a story of God correcting the behavior of Christians or seeking to set a precedent for how he would handle hypocrisy. I'm of the conviction that this story and its context was all about how God would go to extreme measures to protect the church from non-believers seeking to infiltrate the ranks. It was about integrity. Notice the result of this divine act. Like, what what happened because two people died in the church service? We're told what? One, great fear came upon all the church. I can imagine that would be the case. And two, notice, none of the rest dared join them. The rest of whom? Of the unbelieving world that Ananias and Sapphira were likely a part of. But the people, while they wouldn't join, they esteemed them highly. People go into that place and they're either changed or they're dead. Be careful. Like one could imagine this type of holy intervention would have had a negative effect on the growth of the church, right? I mean, if you're not really on board, you go to that place, and they I mean they have a graveyard around the building for an entirely different reason than most churches. I mean, this is not for grandpappy and great grandpappy. This is for like, you gave, whoa. (laughs) They have a a burial ministry. Like it's in the, it's in, would you like to be an usher? I'd love to be an usher. Do you have any problems with corpses? Like, you would think that such a thing would have a negative impact. But notice, instead of a dip in church attendance, look at what happens in verse 14. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Increasingly is the Greek adverb, Milan. Indicating that following this event, believers were being added to the Lord We're getting saved in a greater degree than at any time previously. You you can read back like Acts chapter 2 and read on. We've had some like major numerical increases of the church, and yet what happens here with Ananias and Sapphira does something that yields an increase of, of salvation in a way not seen beforehand. Now what I find interesting about this story is that and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here it defies the conventional wisdom of church growth gurus who believe that the only way the church can be effective in the 21st century is by creating a worship a Sunday worship environment where unbelievers can come to church and feel welcomed and accepted that is the the predominant position today How contrary to this? Like to accomplish this aim, many what we call seeker-friendly churches or attractional churches, they intentionally dumb down the presentation of the gospel. They avoid topics of moral absolutes. They incorporate slick marketing, multimedia techniques, all with the desire of fostering a positive, non-threatening spiritual experience for everyone who might be in attendance. It is church, according to Andy Stanley anyway, for the unchurched. That's dangerous, according to Acts 5. Like, what makes this so ironic is that the church in Acts took the opposite approach. Beyond that, this story illustrates how dangerous a place church should be for unbelievers. While it's true that there were indeed unbelievers who stayed away out of fear, Luke tells us as a direct result of this reverential attitude multitudes were drawn, turned from sin, converted, saw power, and followed Jesus. In fact, too many that Luke doesn't even try to count them. And why was this church so successful? I believe the key to its success was that, first, it was clearly distinct from the culture around it, right? And two, it demonstrated authentic power. Like this church stood in contrast to the world because it offered people a genuine experience with God through Jesus that neither religion nor the Hellenistic culture could provide. Well, there are those that that make the argument. They build the case that we live in a different time. What is interesting to me is that the conditions we find in the first century, in first century Jerusalem, are actually very similar to what I think we find in our own 21st century culture. What do we find here, especially in the South? We find one of two things. Empty religion or pagan hedonism. And I think both leave people hungry for something real, something authentic, genuine. And spiritual. I think that's why many of you are here. Though the seeker-friendly model of church has proven itself successful and attracting what we call to be Generation X. These are, these are people born after the post-World War II baby boom up to 1980. I'm convinced that that model, the seeker-friendly model, is going to die out. That a model that was effective in reaching Gen X will be terrible and ineffective in reaching millennials. That's those born after 1980. I'm not going to go out on a limb when I say that Gen X, or what's also known as the MTV generation, is without a doubt the most superficial, image-driven, egocentric, commercialized, materialistic generation in American history. It is. Which, by the way, makes them absolutely perfect for big-box church with little substance. And yet, while there's a lot of research that needs to be done, it doesn't take a Ph.D. in sociology to recognize that millennials and Gen Z or whatever's coming next are radically different than their predecessors. A few years ago, Pew Research Center issued the first report of its kind in which they discovered a singular characteristic of millennials if we can summarize millennials in one simple characteristic, it's this. That millennials, this new generation, has become increasingly, quote, detached from institutions. That's its most gener- like, g- general characteristics. According to the report, 50% of millennials, which today is, is 38 and under, describe themselves as being politically independent, while 29% claim zero religious affiliation. Pew notes that these numbers are at or near highest levels of political and religious disaffiliation recorded in any generation ever. Pew also observes that millennials have been keeping their distance from another institution. It's called marriage. Just 26% of adult millennials are married. That's down 10% from Generation X, down 22% from the baby boomers, and down 39% from the silent generation with the medium age at first marriage of a millennial now being at its highest uh, age in modern American history. The average millennial gets married, if you're a man, it's 29, and if you're a woman, it's 27. Now, in response to the question that Pew, Pew issued, generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you can't be too careful in dealing with people? Just 19% of millennials say that most people can be trusted. That's down 12% from Gen X and 21% from baby boomers. Again, Pew, the study observes that millennials have emerged into adulthood with the lowest levels of social trust than any other generation before them. Should it be surprised that the Barna Group, the Barna Group is an organization that compiles data about the church. Specifically, they've conducted data about millennials in the church for the last 20 years. Barna Group claims that 52% of millennials do not attend church at all. With 59% of those who grew up in church walking away at some point within the first decade of adulthood. When millennials, who have remained faithful attenders, so that they, they buck the trend, When they were asked by Barna Group to identify what's helped their faith grow, church, or for that matter, church attendance, doesn't make the top ten list. Instead, millennials identify prayer, family, friends, the Bible, having children, and their their relationship with Jesus as the most common driver of spiritual growth. Church, church attendance, not even cracking the top ten. David Kinnaman, who's the author of a book called Unchristian, he commented, writing, quote, Millennials are rethinking most of the institutions that arbitrate life, from marriage and media to government and church. They have grown up in a culture and among peers who are often neutral or resistant to the gospel. Millennials often describe church as, quote, not relevant, or say that attending worship services, quote, feels like a boring duty, end quote. One of the One of the specific criticisms millennials frequently make about Christianity is that it does not offer deep, thoughtful, or challenging answers to life in a complex culture. As a millennial myself, I believe that the reason this younger generation is leaving the church in droves is actually very simple. Church, along with other institutions, is no longer perceived as being genuine or authentic. And you know what's worse? They're 100% correct. Like, here's an example to my point. Why are millennials abandoning the traditional view of marriage for a more libertine approach? Here's the answer. More often than not, a millennial's experience with the institution of marriage has been a negative one with over 50% of their parents' marriages ending in messy divorces, should it be any surprise that millennials don't believe the sanctity of the institution argument is a valid reason to deprive a gay couple in love the right to marry? Hey, if you can make it work, great, because most of the heterosexual couples I know haven't. That's the perspective. Personally, I'm convinced seeker-friendly churches that have appealed to Generation X will be resisted by millennials for the exact same basic reason. Because a church that attempts to appeal to everyone ends up standing for nothing and in the end presents what is perceived to be an empty, meaningless, superficial spiritual experience, they're going to leave it. And as a matter of fact, recent data shows that most attractional church models haven't grown in the last five years. Something you won't hear a lot. Now, on the flip side, millennials don't attend traditional churches for the exact same reason, right? Because these steeples in the community are viewed as being legalistic, filled with hypocrites, and have been mired in scandal after scandal. Millennials no longer find them to be trustworthy either. Should the Christian community, with all of that in mind, be shocked that only 16% of millennials have even a good impression of Christians? Think about that. 16%. With the most common perception of Christians being that they're judgmental. You know, just like Jesus. 87% of millennials believe Christians are judgmental. Once more... Should we be surprised that churches are literally failing when it comes to reaching the next generation? And yet, there's hope. And it's one of the main reasons that Calvary 3.16, for better or for worse, has the kind of culture that we do. While skeptical of institutions, one thing millennials are drawn to, authenticity. In a recent article written by Carrie Noonwolf titled, Five Reasons Charismatic Churches Are Growing and Attractional Churches Are Past Peak. He writes, if you've been around the church world for the last few decades, it's easy to think that you need polish to pull off effective ministry. Another 50000 for lights or sound and you'll be good. But if you're sitting there thinking that you need a better soundboard, some new LEDs, and a much better band to reach people, think again. He writes, passion is free and passion beats polish. The effective churches I've visited by no means had the best light stage or production, not nearly the level you see at other churches. And yet what did they all have in common? Passion. When it comes to reaching the next generation, passion beats polish. He then adds, don't fake passion. People can smell fake from a mile away. In an age where nothing seems real anymore, people are looking for authentic. And being raised, after being raised, in a society that oozes commercialism, millennials have reacted with a craving for things that seem genuine and authentic in a way previous generations haven't, while also having a distaste for anything that appears contrived or disingenuous. The examples commercially are everywhere. Unlike Gen Xers, who drove Bud and Miller to being American staples, millennials are the driving force behind the microbrew movement and craft beer movement. Something that feels authentic. Unlike Gen Xers, who made Jack and Jim a college necessity, millennials are making pre-prohibition whiskey vogue. And we've seen a resurgence of American cocktails. Classics. Unlike Xers who gave up on good music for a digital imitation, just listen to U2's Zeropa. millennials, you know what they're doing? They're raiding their grandparents' basements in search of real analog record players. Unlike Xers who sold out on quality, for a quick-processed Happy Meal. Millennials are fostering a commercial shift back to what? Natural, homegrown produce. With the exception of the McRib. It's glorious. (laughs) When comparing the 20-somethings who remained active in church beyond high school with those who dropped out, the Barna group uncovered a significant difference between the two. I find it fascinating. They discovered this. Those who stay plugged into church were twice as likely to have a close personal friendship with an adult inside that church. Again, David Kinnaman, he observes, among those who remained active, this much is clear. The most positive church experiences among millennials are relational. This stands true from the inverse angle as well. Seven out of ten millennials who dropped out of church did not have a close friendship with an adult and nearly nine out of ten never had a mentor at the church. Now his conclusions where I, I disagree, I'll read it for you and then contrast it. He, he concludes the implication is that huge proportions of church-going teenagers do not feel relationally accepted at church. This kind of information should be a wake-up call to ministry leaders as well as to church adults of the necessity of becoming friends with the next generation of believers. And the 10 years that I spent as a youth pastor before Calvary 316, I have seen firsthand the incredible impact that adult mentors do have on millennials. And yet, it's not because this connection makes millennials feel relationally accepted that kept them at church. The key is that these relational connections that adults have with millennials allow a millennial, hopefully, the opportunity to see authentic, genuine Christianity at work. A form of Christianity that can be embraced because it's seen as real and raw and ultimately respected. Let me bring it home. Not only do we desire Calvary 316 to be as close to Jesus' model for the church as it can possibly be, but we're convinced the best way to reach the next generation, and I, and I, I only point out the next generation because we want to reach all generations. But the best way for us to do this is by personally demonstrating and verbally encouraging people to have a genuine, authentic Christian experience modeled by Jesus. I really do believe that people no longer have an appetite for the gospel dumbed down and to self-help nuggets or surface-level Bible lessons. Again, in a crazy, complex, information-driven world that presents more problems than answers, what did Pew say about millennials? They crave deep, thoughtful, challenging answers. And how to find meaning and purpose to life a complex culture. I believe millennials want God's Word to be taught. They want logical-based explanations, not fast-paced overviews. I think millennials like digging deep, not skipping over the surface. And since millennials challenge everything, I think in presenting the truth, we must validate it. Additionally, I don't believe millennials want a worship experience that's relegated into nothing more than mindless repetitions or energetic, pop-driven sing-alongs. In a superficial, emotionally draining world, I think millennials in you, me, I think we crave a deeper, more passionate way to express ourselves to God than Chance. Millennials, I believe, want to worship God as much with their mind as their heart, which is why, most interestingly, you've seen a resurgence in worship of what? Of old hymns that engage the brain. I'm convinced millennials will embrace a church life that they find to be logically consistent and clearly in sync with what the Bible has to say. I really do believe that. I'm also keenly aware, though, that because millennials have a built-in distrust of people, they will quickly and passionately resist submitting to church life that's based solely upon man's opinions, which is why God's Word is important. Beyond important. It's critical. Through experimentation. If you show a millennial what God has to say about various issues, and then you explain why God took that approach, that it's not just your opinion a Christian millennial will often embrace it. At least they'll respect the position. However, if a millennial perceives that a person in authority is just enforcing a position beyond what God has to say, they'll reject it, they'll leave the church because they distrust people and institutions, and that was just reinforced. There is no question, friend, that we live in a culture that is equally dominated by empty religion and pagan hedonism, similar to what we find in Acts 5. Today, as then, what do people want more than anything? Something that's real, something that's authentic, something that is genuine. And at Calvary 3.16, warts and all, that's all we're trying to be. I should also add that that's the type of church I think God wants all churches to be. Here, whether you've been coming for a while or you're relatively new, there is no pomp and circumstance to what we do here. We don't have a drummer. So we don't have a drummer. We don't have fake sound loops. Like, we're not faking it. We're an awkward worship team. That's obvious. A piano player, an electric guitar player, and a rock and bass player. Somebody's got to keep the beat going, you know? But we're not, we're not trying to be what we aren't. We're in a warehouse and an industrial park that no one can find. You can't get any more authentic than that. People that come to Calvary 316 have to really work hard to find us. But I think that there's something cool to that. Like we, we want to engage your mind and your heart We teach the Bible. We have communion every week and an elder sitting in what we affectionately call the awkward chair. Why? Because the Bible tells us to gather and have communion and have the elders of the church available for prayer for those that are sick. It's awkward to sit in that chair. But we do it because the Bible says to do it. And we even have wine with communion. Why? Because that seems to be biblically authentic. And from time to time, guess what? We're going to teach things that are very hard to swallow. Why? Because the Bible has a lot of those passages. And we won't avoid them. Because to avoid them would be, would be fake. And if I don't have an explanation, I'll just tell you that. I'm not smart. I have no problems admitting that. Saying, I have no idea what that means. Let's move on. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, God acted deliberately to protect the integrity of the church community so that the church would remain a place for believers. They were church attenders, Ananias and Sapphira, pretending to be Christ's followers. They were faking it to gain influence and status God took this seriously because to allow such a thing would have robbed the church, I believe, of its heavenly fragrance and its important standing in the world around it. Again, I want Calvary 3.16 to be a place where God moves in such a real way that great fear came upon all the church and where fakers dared not join them because they held that church in high esteem. And I know that's counter to the pervasive wisdom and ministry approaches of churches that are thriving in our community. But I really do believe, like this church in Acts, being such a place will result in believers being increasingly added to the Lord. So Father, Lord,